Anderson's intent was to conduct a preliminary probe to see what he could uncover before night overtook them. He knew a full investigation would have to wait until daylight, and besides, he wanted to leave the bulk of the investigation to the arson experts. One of the volunteers, however, had gone into an area where the galley door would have been. As he did so, something oozed up between a space in the fiberglass matting and other debris on the deck. The volunteer thought it looked like, quote, some warm gel-like substance, like you would see the gelatin from like a cherry pie filling that you would get out of a can. The man quickly called his discovery to the trooper's attention. Anderson knelt to take a closer look and decided it was a dog or deer carcass of some sort. It isn't very big, he thought. It looks like a deer laying on its side with the legs sticking straight out and totally unrecognizable. It was just burnt tissue and some gut material hanging out. On closer examination, Anderson reached a different conclusion. He realized that he was looking at a human body a human body that had been burned almost beyond recognition. Only seconds later, a second volunteer lifted another layer of fiberglass just past the spot where the fishing boat's stack had been. He discovered yet another body. Now everything had changed. ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Jay, and I am joined by the sarcastic duo, Rory Wicks and Nick. Yeah, I'm really sarcastic. You are sometimes. (laughs) On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So, settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. How's it going? Hey. Hello. I am, uh, it is, I am full of piss and vinegar. I'm ready to go. Yeah, you've got some opinions. I, here's the thing. Definitely not the strongest opinions I've had on this show. I think it's going to be really tough to, to top the book that will not be named. That would be Alien World Order. God damn it. You had to say it. Now yeah. my blood pressure's going up. Yeah, well, somebody had to. Uh, Nick's least favorite book in the whole wide world. I mean, but but again, though, I come back to like most times uh, we do true crime. I'm mostly just sad. I'm sad and disgusted. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like I feel like I don't know. Like after we're done with this, I need to go and burn my clothes and <laughs> cry in the shower, chanting "Forever unclean." Just just like hug your wife and your dog and your cat. Yeah, I, I guess that will have to do. Just like just some good emotional purging. Uh, Yeah, I'm starting to think maybe I should stop doing this to you guys. Mm. I like this book. 
I mean, yeah, wrong. I like the book just fine. It was uh, well written. Uh, Leland Hale definitely did a good job uh, laying out what is an insanely complex case. And baby, I imagined you enjoyed the uh, the court proceedings quite a bit. Well, I was like most of the book. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> the entire I think second half of the book was just the trials. Uh, Yeah. Parts uh, parts two and three were both just trials. And it's not that long of a book either. No. No, no it's mostly trials. Yeah, yeah, I got through it in like three days, so. Yeah. No, it was a nice quick read. Uh, oh, yeah. Definitely an interesting case, though. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, without further ado, uh, we're going to get into the damn thing. Let's do it. All right. Woo! On a foggy Tuesday afternoon, it's September 1982, the residents of Craig, Alaska, a fishing town on Prince of Wales Island, were jarred out of their <clears throat> were jarred out of their routine by a plume of ominous black smoke rising over the waters. A smaller island nearby, dubbed Fish Egg Island, had a fishing vessel burning in one of its coves. That fishing vessel was the Investor, owned by Mark Colthurst. A hesitant search was made of the water, hunting for survivors, but nobody surfaced as the flames continued to consume the small boat. The other fishermen of Craig swarmed towards the vessel, and emergency services were contacted. The situation looked grim. The intensity of the blaze prevented anyone from boarding. On shore, an Alaskan state trooper named Bob Anderson scrambled for a solution. The Craig Police Department had no water vehicles capable of fighting fires. The fire department and the forestry department had equipment, but some of it was out of commission, and the rest of it was still unusable in the situation. Specifically, the pumps that were working could not be hooked up to the fire hoses that were available. <laughs> A boat Anderson commandeered from Fish and Wildlife turned out to have dead batteries. Out of options, Anderson resorted to using his personal boat and trying to recruit civilian craft to douse the flames with their wash pumps. Through creativity and teamwork, the investor was towed to shore. Its burning sign net was extinguished, but the cabin was still ablaze. Realizing that civilian efforts were not going to get the job done, the Coast Guard was radioed and a request for assistance was made. Meanwhile, Trooper Anderson contacted Sergeant Glass, his commanding officer, and he gave his initial assessment. The boat was fairly new, he said, and the fire had spread too aggressively to be natural. Fishing season was coming to a close. Most skippers had a solid idea of, of how much they were going home with. The investor's owner had probably done poorly and was looking for a payout, Anderson reasoned. Time to bring in the arson investigators. If only it were that simple. Finally, the blaze was more or less contained, and Anderson felt safe to take three volunteers aboard to do an initial inspection. Inside, the boat was wet from the water and soggy from the heat. Charcoal and melted fiberglass were everywhere. Outside, the sky was going dark, and they had very little daylight left. One of Anderson's volunteers attempted to search what was left of the galley and found something odd. Something warm and gelatin-like, and an alarming shade of red, oozing up from the piles of featureless debris. Anderson came over to inspect it and found what he first thought was the carcass of a small deer, but then his brain caught up to the situation. It was a human body charred almost beyond recognition, and it was not the only one on board. In the same galley, a second corpse was hidden beneath the fiberglass, and this was no longer a routine insurance arson. 
After obtaining permission to move the bodies, Anderson and his volunteers found two others. One was an adult male who appeared to have been shot. Another was a very small child, with all identifying features erased by the blaze. The body count now at four, Anderson pulled his team back. That was enough for the first night. But by the time this case went to trial, that four would become eight, making this Alaska's largest mass murder. Mark Colthorst, his wife Irene, their young children Kimberly and Johnny, and their crewmen, Dean Moon, Chris Heyman, Jerome Keown, and Mike Stewart would eventually be ruled the victims of the massacre. Two of them, including Dean Moon, were ID'd only through dental records. The intact body showed high alcohol level, no carbon monoxide in their lungs, and that they were likely killed by gunshot. Johnny Colthurst, aged four, was never found. A coroner's jury ruled that his body was turned to ash by the fire. And with that very sad paragraph, we're going to get into our first discussion question. Yeah, that was heavy right there at the end. (laughs) Yep. Now, none of us had heard of this case before I literally Googled books on unsolved murders and found this one. Uh, Do you find it odd or startling that this case, especially given that it was national news at the time, has been forgotten? Uh, why do you think this case has faded into obscurity while cases like the Black Dahlia maintain their hold on the national imagination? Um, I mean, that's a good question. I think that there's a lot of factors that probably go into it. Uh, it being Alaska is one of them. It's kind of, you know, this forgot uh, America's forgotten attic. Um, I think also another big factor here, is, like you brought up the Black Dahlia, is... Um, like the Black Dahlia, the reason people remember that is that whole beauty and death thing, that image of. Oh, no, you're talking about Black. Sorry, Black Dahlia is the one who got cut in half, right? Uh, yes, she she was cut in half, but she was a young starlet yeah. and her, her face was intact. Yeah, that's right. So but you have this kind of I don't, know, I don't want to call a corpse sexy, but, you know, that's that's kind of what you have going for you. The, the image of this young woman, uh, you know, this kind of tragic, very romanticized Hollywood murder. Um. At least that's how a lot of people view it, whereas this was a cold blooded massacre of an entire family, plus a bunch of people who were just trying to do their jobs um, in a remote corner of the world where a very limited number of people would have either would have been directly interacting with the scene or even I mean, in the first 24 hours, who else would even know outside of what the four people who got on that boat right there? Uh, I mean, it's so remote and so detached and yeah, I mean, it, it goes, you know, the, the, over the course of the book, the action moves a bit down into Washington, but still, I mean, that's the other side of the country from us. And, um, I, I don't know. I just, I don't read about a lot of crimes that are happening in California, Arizona. Most of the crime we hear about is, you know, what's happening in Detroit. I mean, unless it gets like something sensational, like a serial killer, like John Wayne Gacy. Well, this was this, this case did make national news. True. Uh, it, it's it, just it wasn't it wasn't. Uh, I mean, I hate to say this, but it wasn't exciting. Well, also, uh, I mean, I will also bring up that it happened before we are all alive. Sure, but so did the Black Dahlia, right? And every other serial killer, and. Right. Yeah. No, right. No, and I, I understand that. But I think you're right. Is it's not there. There is something this is sounds really sick. But from like a, a news media perspective, a serial killer is way more exciting. There's a well. And let's let's be honest with 
Like, I agree with every point that you made in terms of why this hasn't lingered, like why it hasn't lingered with within like the public consciousness, whatever. Um, it's Alaska. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, most of the rest of the United States doesn't give a shit about Alaska and we should. Well, it's just like, um, I, it's just like when I discovered that apparently there's a giant meth problem in Hawaii. I never would have put that never would have connected in my head as that kind of crime would happen there. I mean, granted the image that most of us get of Hawaii is at least here in the Midwest, uh, it's hard to imagine any crime ever happens there. Right. But because it seems like a paradise. But I've heard that uh, it's less of a paradise if you're not a tourist. Um, Rory, what do you what do you think made this case less exciting than like maybe other ones? Well, from just like a like a perspective of somebody who would be interested in or like like from a news perspective, there wasn't a lot of. I can't think of a better word, but saleability of of this case, right? The prosecution, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but it won't matter that much. Uh, The prosecution believed themselves to have a pretty open and shut case, which was not the case by by fucking any means. (laughs) Like, they were so off the mark there, but that's not the point. Um, And... It was a, a family got killed, a family and his and the families because it was a family fishing boat. Yep. Uh, the family's crewmen also got killed. Mm-hmm. Anybody in a newsroom is going to look at that and go disgruntled ex-employee. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was I think that in the book that that's why they thought it was probably Dean Moon before mm-hmm. they before they ID'd him because Dean was. 19 at the time therefore like impulsive and no all yeah. three of his other crewmates were 19 yeah, a yeah. Bunch of, they were kids yeah, yeah. and and i do want to i do want to say like in terms of true crime this the story is actually fascinating it, it absolutely yeah. is. like and i i'm not saying like when i say like it's a boring it, it's boring i meant it from a news perspective like nobody's really going to care about the this this family of fisher people who who got killed by what the news is going to look at and say disgruntled ex-employee. Well, yeah. And also on that note, um, this is one news story. Ultimately, yeah. A couple of years after the killings, we start getting into the trials and things like that. But by that point, it's been years since the initial murders. I know I'm, I'm jump. I'm also jumping ahead here, but yeah, go ahead. The point is, is that like with say a serial killer, um, you have, repeat you have multiple news stories every time a new body turns up you have something new to feed into the news cycle i also think there's probably an element there where after a certain amount of time say probably after the first year there a lot of people stopped caring when they realized the story was likely not going to have an end like it, it, it uh what i mean by that is people like closure they like they they watch the serial killer and a lot of them are waiting for the news that they've been caught, you know, the the closure at the end. And I don't I mean, from I looked up a couple of the news articles from back then. Uh, I read the New York Times piece and things like that. And I, I definitely got the sense that there was no expectation there would be closure on this one, uh, especially because at least a couple months out from the killing man, a couple months is huge in a homicide investigation. Uh, A couple months after the murders, the statements that were coming out of the Alaskan troopers did not seem encouraging to me. Now, granted, that was just the feeling I got 
reading those reading those quotes after having read the book. So that might have definitely colored my perception. You know, and here's the thing. And I this is another one where I hate to say this, but it's honestly true. News like a lot of news outlets, they want to sell fear. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. you, You can't sell fear with a one time crime. Well, and there's yeah. no face for the boogeyman. They're, right. Uh, and what they're doing. Well, also, I, I want to say, like, when you get into serial killers, there is almost this comic booky element to them. And not obviously in the actual things they do, but in terms of what the how the media treats them, they're like supervillains. Yeah. Um, you you guys have heard me complain about that before, that people treat them like they're some sort of D&D monster that you yeah. have to defeat with a spell. And it's like, no, they are people with a mental sickness. Yeah. yeah. And, but the. In this situation, I don't know, like, I think there's also an element of we want people to be scared, but but there are certain fears which are too petrifying, like the fact that someone at any point could walk into a house and massacre everyone in there with a firearm and then vanish into the night. Right. And, you know, as silly as this sounds, but the the shootings were done with a 22, which just isn't exciting either. Well, yeah, but whereas with the serial killer, there's I think it's easier to detach yourself from the crime to kind of imagine it happening in this, again, superhero, supervillain landscape of hero cops and Machiavellian killers. Whereas if it's just a disgruntled dude coming in with a gun, it's too real, I think, for a lot of people. They and they don't want to linger on it. Oh, that's why there's less. At least that's why I think there's less um, almost fanfare around like mass shootings and school shootings is that feels too real. Yeah. Um, And don't be wrong. I am not saying serial killers and their victims were not real people or anything like that. It's 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 just easier for the media to treat it like it's a sequel to the movie seven. And that in turn makes their viewers more able to treat it like it's a movie. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Whereas this is just base human brutality. Yeah, and in- incredible brutality. Uh, what One of the descriptions in the book that, that still lingers with me is uh, where everyone was shot. Basically, the gunman could have just come in through the one door that was the only way to get out onto the, onto the uh, deck outside of a small hatch that almost no one really knew about. Almost everyone was drunk or passed out. And just the image of him just standing in that doorway, knowing they have nowhere to go and just raining bullets down on them. It it it, it stuck with me. It was horrifying. I, it was it. The, the case itself is is pretty horrible. And I think that's I think um, like like you like you guys were saying that that may have it may have just been taken a step too far and reporters started skirting it, especially when you get into the um the horrifying realization of like four-year-old Johnny Coldhurst absolutely died on that boat and we will never obtain his body. Well, it's not just that it's, it's, it's sick as this is again. I, I couldn't help but thinking, God, I hope he died on that boat. I hope that he wasn't taken by whoever did this. Um, and that's a horrible thing to have to think about a four-year-old child. Yeah. And- uh, and, so, well, and also the fact that there were two kids involved in this who, from everything, every indication we got in the book, were genuine innocents. They were well liked. All the other fishermen knew them. They were like the friendly dock kids running around. And Irene Colthurst was three months pregnant when she died. Oh. My my personal thoughts on it are, 
are similar to you guys, but I also I, I think that beyond the fact that it was set in Alaska, which most people in the lower 48 just don't want to pay attention to at all for whatever reason, because if we think about it too much, we start going, why do we have that? It's clearly part of Canada. But <laughs> deals and oil, deals and oil, oil, oil. Yeah, but well, I, we made a deal to get the oil. Yeah, but oil is why we keep it. I mean, that. yeah. Also, you know, it's our only supply of moose blood. I think that's a long enough awkward pause. <laughs> you you guys did not have the pleasure of seeing Rory's face. I'm always wondering which episode will turn to physical violence in this Michigan basement. And I thought for a second it was going to be this one when not, you know, the uninvited, which was was the more logical choice. No, I I, I, I mean, I, would, I, I thought you were going to say uh, Alien World Order there because the I, I thought Nick was going to attack me. I was not going to attack you. I would have saved all of that for other individuals. <laughs> but um, I, I think the other part of it is honestly the fact that it took place on a fishing boat in a random town in Alaska that no one had ever heard of. And like, yeah, yeah, like, I, 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 I thought about that, too, like. It's a fishing village, like a thousand people on a regular basis, 2000 people on peak fishing season. I and to just put it bluntly, like, you know, Nick, Nick was you guys were both talking about the sailability of this. Fishing boats aren't considered sexy. They're not exciting. This wasn't this wasn't a secret back room in a Vegas strip lounge. This wasn't a cocaine penthouse from some broker in New York. It's like it's a fishing boat. It's a oh, fishing boat owned by some rando a, from Washington. Three quarter million dollar fishing boat that does look badass. Yeah, I will say this. You called the boat small in the summary and I. It's I, fucking huge. It's, I mean, comparatively to a lot of the fishing boats, this thing was top. The investor was top of the line. It yeah. had three quarter million dollar ship, all the newest gadgets. And it was it was. I do it not understand. I do not understand boats. If I say something is a small boat, you have to remember the only boat I've ever been on has been a cruise liner. I don't know how big boats are okay. supposed to be. So, so you've been on some of the largest boats ever to be put on the ocean. Yes, I am a spoiled Midwesterner. Okay, got it. I. Also, I think another factor of this is yet this this happened in 1982 and the 1970s and 1980s in America, particularly out west, not Alaska in specific, but out along the West Coast. There were so many goddamn serial killers mm -hmm. that that have you ever heard the statistic of the FBI estimates that at any given point there are 33 serial killers active in the United States. That comes from the 1970s and 80s. Yeah. That estimation is way lower now in practical circles. But during the 1970s and 80s, there were actually probably closer to 50 operating at any given time. I think it's entirely possible that the media didn't the media might have given this more attention if it hadn't been happening during one of the worst and scariest crime waves that the United States would ever see. I'd be curious to cross-reference cross the timeline of this to what other potential, like, killers were active at the time. Um, Robert Hansen was active at the time. Several of the investigators into the investor murders were veterans from the Robert Hansen case. Yeah, that's another Alaska case. Yeah. 
I mean, early 80s. Berkowitz? Uh, yeah, I th- Berkowitz was the 80s. I think. <sighs> Had they put Dahmer away yet? Or was he I, still? I don't know. I, I, I'm shit at dates. Um, and it's not really important right now. Yeah, I think we're going down a sidetrack here. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So. Before he could rest for the night, Trooper Anderson had to interview his first witness. A college student who'd been fishing in Alaska for the summer had seen a man in his 20s driving a skiff, a smaller boat designed to help set up fishing nets on larger vessels, driving a skiff away from the burning investor. Odd, given the rest of the town was trying to converge on the scene. Anderson located said skiff, but decided that the pelting Alaskan rain would make it impossible to fingerprint. What he didn't realize was that this was not a random skiff. This boat belonged to the investor. The next day, the recovered bodies were airlifted from Craig to Ketchikan, where they could be autopsied. Additionally, more of Alaska's finest had arrived. Prosecutor Mary Ann Henry, Trooper Captain Mike, I'm going to butcher this, Kalivsky, Kalivsky. Mike Kalivsky and his lieutenant, Roger McCoy, and two investigators from the Criminal Investigation Bureau, Sergeants Dogsdale and Miller. It was time to start finding witnesses and ripping the investor apart. First among these witnesses were the crew of a boat called the Casino, who had been among the first on the scene. They confirmed the unnamed college student's description of the skiff operator, seen possibly fleeing the fire. Early 20s, glasses, ball cap. Additionally, they asserted that the skiff operator showed signs of expertise. He was not learning on the fly. Two more witnesses reported seeing the same man arrive at the dock and spoke to him briefly. His manner of speech was odd, they noted, like he was not very bright or possibly in shock. Finally, a man calling himself Jim Robinson thought that he maybe remembered a man of that description buying gas from him. On Tuesday? The day of the fire? Eh, maybe. Might have been Monday. Jim couldn't recall. Some God wi- damn it, Jim. <laughs> Jim fucking Robinson. We're going to get to Jim motherfucking Robinson. Yeah, it, I did not predict how important the freaking gas station clerk was going to be <laughs> to this case. I thought of a nickname for him. We're going to call I, I'm going to call him Jim through the case Robinson. <laughs> oh, my God. I the fact that Mary Ann Henry hung her whole case on this motherfucker. Yeah. We're going to get to Jim through the case Robinson. We're going to get to him. (sighs) As I said, Jim couldn't recall this man that he maybe saw and at what point he possibly maybe dreamed him up. (laughs) Some witnesses had seen the skiff operator but did not describe a young white man. One was certain he'd seen a middle-aged Alaskan native operating the investor skiff. (laughs) This somehow will continue to be important through both of the upcoming trials. (laughs) A safety patrol operator for Craig, called Jerry Mackey, searched a local bar and spotted a man who fit the description. The witnesses from the casino could not identify him, but Captain Kalifsky followed him outside and asked for an ID anyway. That man's name was John Peel, and it turns out that he knew the people aboard the investor. In fact, he had worked on Mark Colthurst's previous boat, the Kit, not the Kiff. Kiff is a character from Futurama. Correct. And that's, and that's Peel with a P, not Keel with a K. 
Yeah, I kept messing that up when I was reading. I was thinking, Keel, what are you doing? <laughs> Go back to Chase and Ghost. Stop shooting me. I swear to God, if it turns out John Keel somehow is responsible for the deaths of Ort the Investor, I'm going to He's not. To, I'm going to move yeah, to China. I, let's, not, not. let's not malign John Keel's name I, any more than people like the, to do. The yeah. only person John Keel ever killed was Indrid Cold. God, wouldn't that be a great story if it turned out that was true, that there was this secret battle happening between, between Keel, John Keel and John Indrid Cole? Ke- John Keel and Indrid Cole. Um, anyway. The one witness said that it was most definitely not Peel operating the skiff. The police noted the man's name and face. Back aboard the investor, Stogsdill and Miller were facing the daunting task of gathering evidence. Unable to dry dock the boat, they made do and searched the crime scene out on the water. With large shrimp screens set over trash cans, the men grimly shifted through pounds and pounds of wet, smoking debris. Inch by inch, layer by layer, they combed for bones, for teeth, for burned chunks of flesh and for literally anything else. On board the ship, they found a gun hidden away in a locker. Its stock was missing. A fire extinguisher was also found. No one had attempted to use it, indicating that those on board were dead long before the flames caught. A fifth body turned up as well, and the severed arm of a sixth. They were they joined their fellows in Ketchikan. Below deck, signs of an attempted sinking were found, and the arson investigators were now certain that the fire was deliberate. In the first year following the murder, the police came up with over a dozen suspects. Among them, briefly, was Dean Moon, who had not yet been properly ID'd. Only his teeth had survived. Stogsdill even chased down a lead in California where someone was certain that they'd seen Moon. That came to nothing. But in Alaska, the team was liking John Peel more and more. Some witnesses picked him out of a photo lineup, but others didn't. Hoping that he'd break under pressure and simply confess, Peel was brought in for questioning. He denied the allegations and agreed to a polygraph, which he allegedly failed. On top of that, police had finally interviewed John Peel's current co-workers aboard the Libby 8, another boat that had been docked in Craig at the time. None of them could alibi John. Armed with that information, John Peel was finally arrested for the investor murders. And we're going to move into our next two discussion questions. Ooh, back to back. It's double wire. Yep. Right off the bat, what are your impressions of the murder investigation that was launched into the investor into the investor murders? Are there any holes or shortcomings that you saw? Essentially, do you trust the work that this initial investigation team put in? So, in short, no. <laughs> And I think, and, and a lot of it comes back, a lot of my thoughts that I had while reading the book initially uh, come back to bite them in the ass, which makes me think I would have made a good police detective. I think you would have too, personally. <laughs> um, but the first mistake that Anderson made was not fingerprinting anything. Yeah. Like, assuming that the rain washed everything away was fucking stupid. Because, one... Um, I don't know if you've ever left fingerprints on your windshield before, but even wiping them away just one time does not always take it away. Mm-hmm. Our, the, the oils that we leave behind are pretty thick. Yeah. So while maybe, 
maybe he was right that there wouldn't have been able to get anything, but there are chances that he could have at least gotten a partial. And anything is better than the nothing that that he did. But the very least, the fact that he didn't even try leaves such a giant hole for the defense to just jump right through. A- absolutely. And jump through, they will. But other than that, I think the initial investigation, he did the best that he could. Yeah. You know, he was limited on resources. He really couldn't do much of anything because they had to ship everything out to an actual, you know, an actual town because unfortunately Craig just doesn't have anything, you know, they don't even have a police force, you know, anyway. So I, I think they bumbled a lot of the investigation, but I think they did um, the best with what they had, but the, I don't think they should have handled this investigation at all. It's like, it was a murder investigation. They should have, like, and yeah, state, stateies were involved, but it should have been way more experienced people. I don't know. No, I don't think they did a good job. Nick? I mean, given how we know, you know, the how the case works out, uh, yeah, no, of course they didn't do as, as thorough of a job as they should have. There were several missteps. Um, some of which are implied, such as potentially strong arming some witnesses, but we don't know for sure if that happened. Well, based off of, and this was another thing. I'm glad you said that sentence. I'm sorry that I cut you off, but I, I want to get this thought out real quick. Go ahead. They absolutely 100% intimidated repeatedly and repeatedly intimidated people. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, they were definitely trying to intimidate Peel. In oh, that. God, yeah. Um, And I, I think... I think probably honestly regarding the actual boat investigation, I didn't find too much about their investigation that I could blame them for. Not because there weren't mistakes. Uh, everything Rory said was it was up there. But li- again, like Rory said, they were doing the best with what they had because I was sitting back thinking, OK, what would have I done differently? It's like there's nothing they could have done differently. Uh, there wasn't the equipment to make the scene safe to go in. They should have sunk the boat. Oh, yeah, a- actually, that is one thing. They should have sunk the boat. A, a sunken ship would have been a more contained crime scene but at the same time um i i i think because until they found the bodies they didn't even know this was murder so then and also there could have been theoretically maybe someone alive on the boat you don't want to sink it and kill them (laughs) um i mean yeah but they had also i i mean i thought that they had made it seem pretty clear at the point where they were trying to put out the fire that there was no, they assumed nobody was on board. And yeah. If you assume nobody's on board, you can't get the fire out. I mean, I will say this though. I, by the time they would have gotten out there, I don't know if that sinking the boat would have made much difference because the fire had already torn through the boat. Yeah. But the embers were still going even after they had gotten the fire out, disrupting and destroying the crime scene. If they sunk it, it would have at least quelled the fire. I mean, that's, that's fair. Uh, then they would just have to bring in scuba gear. Beyond that, though, which they probably had beyond that, I think the bigger mistake they made was I I don't think they should have brought in Peel and tried to like intimidate him into just confessing because that if Peel is the killer that immediately tipped their whole hand to him. Absolutely. Um, And administering a polygraph. I mean, I don't know how 
widely known this knowledge was in the early 80s, but we all know it's pretty much a snake oil medicine. It, it's yeah. an intimidation tactic that is not admissible in court. It wasn't in 1982. It's nope. not today. Um, it's garbage. Yeah, no, it it, it is expressed. They it is used as a tool to provoke people into giving a confession. Yeah. If they because they believe the machine is going to know I'm lying, I might as well fess up now. Um. So if you didn't know that, congratulations. Now you do. Yeah. If anyone tries, if police say they're trying to give you a polygraph, uh, go ahead. Yeah. None just, of the t- just say yes. Yeah. The tests that and no matter what the results are, they it is not admissible in court. So uh, and also apparently as we've learned, if you're gonna kill people. Go, Go somewhere very remote, uh, but don't kill people. We don't endorse that. Please don't, don't, don't do it. Don't kill people. I thought I thought Jay was going to be the one to get us in trouble, but now you know we're endorsing I don't mean, more murder. I, I don't mean to give murder advice. Sometimes <laughs> it just falls out of my diseased brain. Uh, I. I was frustrated with the investigation long before it became a murder. I I was frustrated with the investigation when it was still just a firefighting attempt of just, I feel so bad for Bob Anderson. Like, it was just like the, of just this poor man just running from building to building, screaming, where's your shit to put out fires on flaming boats? And they're like, we don't have anything like that. And he's like, why the fuck? It's your job to have that. It's fucking. Can you imagine going to the forestry department and being like, you have firefighting equipment, right? And they're like, oh, boy, do we? And it's like, can I have it? It doesn't work. What? Yeah, <laughs> shit's broke. You, you know, I, another thing, another thing which I, you touched on a little with your summary, but I just wanted to bring it up because it's one of my favorite uh, scenes in the book. Yes. Is I love the fact that before the police really could get involved in putting it out, well, Bob Anderson was still running around trying to get equipment. A team like the Fisherman Avengers co- co- oh, yeah. coalesced on the yeah. boat and they were just just these yokels messing around trying to figure out how to put out the fire up to it, including a guy who tried to like ram the boat slowly to tip it to let all the water in to put the fire out. I know. And he, and he only ended up like, pushing it towards shore and damaging the boat more. That was that was that was one of my favorite scenes, too. And like I I wanted to put it in the summary, but there's so much here. No, absolutely. Like, uh, uh, plus, if we put everything in the book, we wouldn't give every or in our summary, we wouldn't give anybody a reason to buy it. And you should, you should go support Leland Hale. He's a nice guy. He yes. is. Yes, please, please support Leland Hale, who is a very nice man. And please read this book and watch him expose the Alaskan law enforcement <laughs> community. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I know I loved that of just all the fishermen, the the fact that every that people saw a plume of smoke rising in the sky and their response was everyone in the village started throwing themselves into their boat and being like, we've got to go take care of that like someone's <laughs> I, livelihood is on fire like, it, like that's the thing is like i also the reason i like that is that was such a good human moment all these fishermen they i mean they've even established at this point most of the fishermen don't really know mark mark yeah. colhurst he is from seattle he's on a bigger boat than all of them and he was kind of this somewhat wealthy outsider who came in during the season and I, I love the image of regardless of all that, the moment there was danger, they just coalesced to try to deal with the situation as best they could. And sure, they ended up messing things up way worse than if they had just let things be. But I applaud the effort. 
yeah. yeah. And it's like that. I'm not sure that wouldn't have. I'm not sure that that wouldn't have been my response too. Of it's like, of it's like, especially because at this point they said that the uh, Craig Police Department was like newly formed. It was like a mm-hmm. couple of years old. That's why they didn't have anything that could go out onto the water and fight the fires. So it, it helped drive home the impression of like they're doing this because this is how it's always worked in Craig. It's like the Alaskan government is not capable of taking care of us and we need to take care of each other or we're all going to die. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and people who are fishermen, I mean, I've I've met a fisherman in my life, like one professional fisherman ever. But my understanding is a big appeal for a lot of people that life is that you're out, you know, on the water and it really is. It's down to you and your crew to survive. But, you know, you're used to doing things yourself of managing crises. I could definitely see how these guys, upon seeing the situation, would think I could take a crack at fixing this. It's just a fire. I put these out every time I make my breakfast. I also love the fact that after all these attempts, they got finally got one boat that had a water pump on it, had a water cannon on it. Yeah. And it was it was just this lone water cannon and the image of this of just this little dinghy with a water cannon just zipping around this big boat, just blasting it with with completely ineffectual water. And that skipper put the net out. She couldn't she couldn't quell the cabin fire all the way, but she put the net out. Yes, she did. <laughs> God damn it, she did it (laughs) (laughs) we're very proud of her absolutely (laughs) maybe the prosecution should have called her too (laughs) they were calling everybody out we're not there yet we're not to the part of the book that fills me with a deep existential depression so i actually i'm wrong there the whole book the whole book did that um okay So I, I, yeah, like I said, I was, I also was not overly impressed with the initial investigation that they were doing, especially of just like the fact that, uh, they, they saw a man in the bar that they're like, that met, that messes, that matches the description, but that's not actually why they called the witnesses in. They called the witnesses in because the investigators to look at him because the investigators were like, something about that boy ain't right. (laughs) Yeah, they, they, they had a gut feeling about a guy they saw in the bar, and so they brought the witnesses in to see if it was him. They're like, he's got all shifty eyes. And I'm like, maybe he's just tweaking. <laughs> maybe he's guilty of a crime that has nothing to do with you. Maybe he's scared because there's fucking cops in his bar, and also someone's boat was on fire. Right. <laughs> like, maybe he's just having a hard fucking day. And... <sighs> all right. We feel we feel ready to move on to the next discussion question. I feel ready. Let's do it. Next. So at this point in the book, were you still forming impressions or had you started spinning your own theories on what had happened aboard the investor? Um, do you trust the final body count that we received or do you suspect that that number might have been wrong? Um. Let me say this. I I sincerely hope the number is not wrong. And what I mean by that is I am sure I'm I'm not sure I am. I am fairly convinced that everyone is dead 
Um, I really hope the four-year-old son is dead, like I said earlier, because if he's not, that introduces some uh, some ho- potential horrors uh, that are too gr- too grim to imagine. As for my own, as for uh, my impressions, obviously, I I thought all I mean all signs are pointing to John Peel right now. And I still think that that's likely um, in terms of this stage. I, I I don't know. Like I was trying to also uh, due to something Jay and I were talking about. I was trying to come up with a paranormal theory <laughs> about how these murders happened because I was like, I'm going to bring it back onto into the paranormal world. And I'm going to come up with some off the wall theory. And I came in thinking mermaids and I very quickly realized I am. I, I cannot imagine a mermaid with a 22 that's then torturing the boat. Um I don't know. So I my brain was a little scattered because of that. At the time, I thought it was either going to be uh, Peel or Dean Moon, but I found Dean Moon increasingly unlikely, partially due to one of the reasons they brought up in the book in that he was 19 years old and he has to go. If he killed these people and then vanished in the night, he has to go on living somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and for a 19 year old to c- cut all ties with their family, suppose would seem to be a, a healthy, loving family relationship uh, to cut ties with all their friends, anyone who knew them and go off the grid and vanish and reinvent the, uh, themselves under a new identity. That just seemed a bit much. And he really didn't have a motive. No, he, he didn't. Yeah, he he had even less motive than John Peel and. John Peel's motive was definitely present, but they never fully established what exactly it was supposed to be. I, I do think that part of the reason some of the investigators uh, zeroed in on Dean Moon was because of his relationship with marijuana. Yeah. And I think that they were thinking, ah, this kid is smoking the reefer. He's going to go mad and kill on a killing spree eventually. Why not now? Yeah. Yeah. As we know, marijuana in- induces an unreasoning desire to kill. A chocolate bar. What? Kill a chocolate bar. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I was real concerned you were having a stroke right there. <laughs> I, I, I'm just going to do that in conversation now. I'm going to wait for any break in conversation, especially ones I'm not involved in, like out on the street. And then just lean in between them. Chocolate bar. I thought you were about to start spinning an amazing theory that explains how a chocolate bar is directly responsible for all of the deaths. You give or- me, you give me way too much credit for creativity. I'm not that creative. It's just like, it's just like an eat one of those Easter chocolate bunnies holding a twenty two <laughs> on the boat. Eat my ears and leave the rest, will you? <laughs> so my theories, um, I I don't. I didn't, and like at this point in the book, I wasn't really spinning my own theory. I was mostly just trying to figure out why they were going after John Peel. Fair. Because outside of um, pure speculation, they they really had nothing linking John Peel to the case or to the, 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 the killings at this point. You know, they had the, the couple of uh, witnesses who were like, man, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. But yeah. there was nothing really solid. Uh, yeah. And not until the, I don't even think they got anything super solid until after they had already arrested him. Basically, so, um, be, because that the, the one testimony in the in the grand jury trial that then got uh, recanted during the actual trial mm-hmm. that didn't come out until after he was arrested. Right. And. Like uh, and other witnesses stepped forward after he had been arrested, which it, that's pretty typical. Like that yeah. that happens all the time um, with cases. But 
like I, 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 the, I, I feel like the, the prosecution was, you know, or the, the investigators were so gung ho about just trying to get this case wrapped up and get it, you get somebody on the, you know, in court and, you know, to blame, put a name to the, to the crime so that they could just move on. And that was that, like, I, there was just this overwhelming feeling that they were just trying to be done with it. Yeah. You know, I mean, this case traumatized everyone who was involved in it. Well, I mean, yeah, I imagine being one of the people who comes across all these bodies, the, the state they're in. And it was it was Anderson and three volunteers. That's right. the part Wait. I can't get past is the team he brought onto the boat were just were just people that had been near the dock that are like, Yeah, sure, officer, I'll help. Yeah, and can you imagine just being one of those fishermen? Like uh, you've been trying to put out this fire all day, you hope no one's hurt, and then you get on and you see that i mean especially the description of the cherry pie filling uh it it just it's sickening i mean i can imagine you need decades of therapy after that and these are fishermen from alaska so you know none of them ever went to a therapist yeah no i i i don't think honestly uh because at this point in the book we didn't we weren't officially like they they still didn't know that dean was was dead at yeah. this point in the book. Yeah. Um I was I was more on board with the it was probably him at this point than John Peel. Yeah, especially because Dean Moon fit the description of the man leaving right. on the skiff just as much as John Peel did. And he was and he was uh he was the skiff uh driver for the investor. And and I don't think that this totally panned out or that they never found substantial evidence of this. But one of the investigators had an informant who said, let me go dig. Let me go dig around and came back and said, yeah, Dean Moon was 30 was 30 grand in debt to a drug dealer. Yeah, but they did, outside of the informant, there was nothing else to back that up. And that, yeah. so I kind of wrote that off. I, I, I wrote it off, too, but I I was aware of it at the time, yeah. and that was why there I there was a solid like maybe there was a solid maybe like ten percent of the book where I was like this was Dean Moon, wasn't it? But then like like Nick said, the longer it went without him even contacting his mother, and I don't think his mother could have faked it as long as she did no. as well as she would have had to. But so I I came around to nope. D- Dean Moon died on that boat. I, I will say this. You know what? As another thing that to me uh, indicates that it wasn't Dean Moon. It's the, so this there there's a mechanism on the boat to launch the skiff. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh-huh. And it was broken as if it had been forced, like somebody forced the boat off because uh, they could, either didn't know how to or they couldn't operate the uh, mechanism. Now, John Peel knew how to drive a skiff. That's what he was doing on the kit, uh, the previous boat. And now Dean Moon was the cur- one on the current boat. But John Peel had never been the skiff operator for the investor. For the investor. Yeah. If it was Dean Moon who was the killer, he would have known how to operate that mechanism and he wouldn't yeah. have had to force it. John Peel had never set foot on that boat before. It's possible it was some fancy top of the line skiff launch that he just didn't know how to operate. It's it's also entirely possible that uh, even if that like if if Peel hadn't done it for a while and he just killed eight people and thought the boat was about to sink, 
he might just not is just like fuck it don't even do it right just 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 get it off you need to go like yeah i mean adrenaline will make you do all sorts of weird things and it, when you're trying to think fast you're not always thinking right yeah seldom i would i, I would say uh, uh. <laughs> live fast leave a good looking corpse no i just i think that it depends on how how often you live inside that 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 feeling how oh. often the adrenaline is pumping in you on whether or not you make rational decisions when you're under that under that kind of pressure ah that explains it i live slow i live in the slow lane of reading and peaceful evenings i mean i do now was was anybody else having trouble figuring out what they thought happened here just because it seemed like every fucking witness they talked to changed their story five times? Yeah, that definitely complicated things. Uh, and I think a bit, I think that uh, comes with the, the community that is Craig. They didn't they don't want to rat each other out. And I don't and I don't think they wanted to be involved in any big court case. I mean, my understanding is a lot of people who move to Alaska do that. So they're around less people. You know, that was apparently also actually interestingly, that was another problem in the Robert Hansen case is that a lot of his victims that got away alive would not talk to the cops because they're like, I think you're as bad as he is. No, I will not tell you what happened to me. Get the fuck away from me. Like, and I, I think that the John Peel for our listeners at home was working on another fishing boat at the time of the investor murders called the Libby eight. And the police talked to the crew members of the Libby 8 many, many times, and several of them were ended up being witnesses for the prosecution. And we can't get straight answers out of any of them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think I think one thing that might have contributed to that is so when the uh, maybe when the murders happened, that uh, it was you know last day of the catches. And basically, there is not enough room at the Craig ports for all the fishing boats. So the investor was tied to two other boats. Like one boat was tied to the dock. Another boat was tied to that boat. And the investor was tied to that boat. Mm -hmm. So the killer would have had to cross two boats, including the Libby 8, and then come back, right? Yep. Um, I could very easily see the members of the Libby 8 who were partying that night on their boat uh, being very uh, dodgy about giving their testimonies because either a maybe they're afraid that they are going to be seen as a potential uh, culprit or, or B, I, I could see that there might be some guilt playing into that. I bet so, many of them were thinking this happened right under my nose and I didn't see it or th- these this family was wiped out and it was right next to me. I could see that compromising some people. Yeah. And they were all also almost definitely wasted on the night that it happened and several of them were high and had Mm -hmm. been smoking marijuana and i know that's why we couldn't get a straight answer out of larry uh larry demert and brian palinkas for a long time is because they both thought they were going to get thrown in jail for pot right Mm -hmm. absolutely (sighs) all right now I'm mad. It's like I, I don't, I don't like cops either. But it's like if you're gonna, if you're gonna lie to them, commit. Like, don't change your story a bunch of time. That's just, that's just gonna give this gonna give everyone a headache, particularly me. Let's let's. I'm gonna rephrase that a little bit. Don't lie to cops. Because it will bite you in the ass. Yeah. Also, like in this case, all you'd be doing by lying to cops is making sure that a child killer gets away. That is a very good point. In which case, go fuck yourself. Like, 
if, like, if you're standing on principle when there is literally two dead children who've just been gunned down, I, I don't I don't see that as honorable in any in any light. If you are afraid that an aspect of your testimony will get you in trouble, you can plead the fifth and reword the what the sentence. For example, I saw John Peel that night. I purchased something from him and then he went on his way. Well, what did you purchase from John Peel? I plead the fifth. Yeah. Congratulations. You can absolutely do that. I mean, fun fact, one member, one crew member of the Libby eight during his uh, during his interview with police pled the fifth 97 (laughs) times during the course of giving his statement. He sure did. That was another one of my favorite scenes in the book was imagining a two hour cross examination of this guy just saying to plead the fifth, plead the fifth, fifth. I mean, at a certain point, I understand why Weidman just started losing his mind and just started screaming Nancy Grace conspiracy theories. Weidman? Weidman. We'll get to that son of a bitch. The, the, honest to God, I know that there's like a mass killer in this. In my mind, he's the antagonist <laughs> of this book. I mean, he's it's kind of a piece of shit. So, yeah. He, well, he's, here's the thing, because we don't ultimately know who the killer is unsolved. Um, yeah, he is a face I can attach a lot of hate to. So I did. <laughs> Are we ready to move into the next part of the summary where we talk about the trial? I am. My body's ready. My mind is ready. I got my my I got my uh, rage on lock. Not alien new world order. Not going to happen again. I'm going to keep my cool. It's going to happen again. I give two thumbs up. Yay. That's the best number of thumbs. A grand jury was convened and ruled to indict. That was dismissed, however, on a small technicality. The second indictment took, due in part to Don Holstrom of the Libby 8, suddenly remembering that John Peel had confessed to the murders in a bar. I'm, I'm sorry. What did he do? <laughs> <laughs> Don Holmstrom, just just like they're like, hey, hey, can you come testify for the grand jury in this? I'm not going to call her the first thing that came to my mind because it's it's not a nice thing to call someone. This young lady then abruptly told the prosecution like, oh, yeah, yeah. About a year after the deaths, John and I were drinking in a bar and he started crying and he told me he did it. Is that important? And they're like, yes, Dawn, that's very important. Please. You mean you mean it was that John Peel? <laughs> I thought it was another John Peel. I thought you were talking about the Mothman guy. <laughs> I thought you were talking about John Keel. And let me tell you, as a true believer in the phenomenon, John Keel is not not capable of this crime but you're talking about john peel john peel's a psychopath (laughs) god damn it don (laughs) i think i think you i think you just broke jay (laughs) i was so mad i put the book down and i walked away from it because in the book it happens like that suddenly of it's just like oh yeah by the way she told the she basically told the grand jury at indict at the indictment trial like oh yeah he confessed and i'm just picturing like if john peel had been in the room and he's (laughs) (laughs) i did what (laughs) excuse excuse me (laughs) i did what now well 
and wasn't wait no wasn't he there because wasn't during the indictment not for the grand jury i thought he when did when did he wear the ski mask uh that was at his arraignment yeah ah yeah yeah okay uh, uh yeah. i'm getting ahead of myself uh yeah fun fact for the for the listeners at home uh john peel uh wore a ski mask to one of his arraignments and to another one he wore a woman's wig He's weird, dude. I didn't understand that. So, like the, the whole argument of the ski mask was we don't want the jury to see his face and make any snap decisions about him, which I got to say, if you just got a murder, murdery face. Um, also, I, I, does showing up in a ski mask really not make you look less? That, murdery? That's the thing, because in the picture of him sitting next to his lawyers, guess he looked like the murderer. Like yeah. I saw the guy. I don't want you to see my face. Why? Because you'll see the victim's scratch marks in my cheeks. And I don't want to right. I don't want to tilt the jury any direction. That'll Sir, be a- these murders took place four and a half years ago. Why do you still have fingernail scratches on your face? Oh, we're here about those murders? <laughs> God damn it, Mr. Peel. <laughs> There were some deep, deep wounds. God damn it, Mr. Peel. I don't want to believe Don Holstrom because I think she might be an idiot. But you're making it really difficult. We've gone so far off the rails. All right. All right. All right. Everyone take a deep breath. Back on the rails. All right. So John, John Peel's, uh, John Peel's interesting fashion choices set aside. Um, In the prosecution's opening statements, Marianne Henry implied that John Peel had resented Mark Colthurst over his financial success and over his decision to allegedly fire John from the kit. That's another thing. We can't nail down if he was fired from the kit or not. Everybody's telling a different fucking story there, too, which is why you keep goddamn records. Ugh. She also pointed to the fact that John Peel's behavior during the interrogation and arrest did not match that of an innocent man, according to her. He never said he didn't do it, Henry insisted. On the side of the defense was Philip Weidman, Nick's favorite person, and Brant McGee, and Weidman came out swinging. Rather than dismantle the circumstantial evidence set forth by Henry, he began introducing wild theories. Theories like Mark Colthurst was a cocaine dealer in too deep and he was taken out by professional hitmen. And Dean Moon is alive and has inadvertently framed John Peel for the murders he himself committed. By the way, he said he would say that last part while Dean Moon's grieving mother, Ruth, sat in the stands behind him, listening the whole time. As the trial went on, bungling by the initial investigators was brought up again and again. Nothing had been fingerprinted except the novel of a gas can suspected to hold the accelerant. Crucial pieces of the timeline, one version of which could have exonerated Peel, were never completely established. An issue was raised about one photo lineup. It appears that the investigators had chosen to place six different photos of Peel into a single lineup before showing it to a witness. This, the defense argued, invalidated the ID. Jim Robinson, the man who may have sold gas to the culprit, had changed his story. Now he was certain of the day and of the person and loudly proclaimed it to be John Peel. But the defense tore him to shreds. It wasn't that hard. The man's name wasn't even Jim Robinson. He was a fugitive from justice hiding in Alaska to avoid a prison sentence in Arizona. Larry Demert Jr., the skipper aboard the Libby 8, had also changed his story a couple of times, but eventually admitted something. 
In open court, he stated that he had seen a person sneaking around the deck of the investor the night before the fire, and he was certain it was John Peel. Weidman had little choice but to attack Demert's character. Repeatedly, he accused the man of being a lying Valium addict and implied that he'd been bribed, coerced, or tricked by police. The prosecution practically lost a witness halfway through. Dawn Holstrom changed her story again. Now she couldn't remember anything related to the murders at all. (laughs) How convenient. For seven months, the process dragged on. Multiple times, Weidman was forbidden from bringing up non-relevant topics including Colthurst's alleged drug dealing, Demert's Valium habit, and Jim Robinson's not-yet-established criminal history. There was, a, there was a point in the trial where the prosecution knew who he was and the defense suspected he was lying about his name, but that didn't come out until later because these people can't do anything in a straightforward and timely manner. They have to treat everything like it's... I don't I don't even know what this is. Well, it's a circus. It, it It's a circus. But also the, the the prosecution was trying to keep it secret because it had no relevance on the case. Yeah. And it, they knew if it got out that the defense was going to blow it out of proportion. And I agree with the prosecution's decision personally, because, again, it had no relevance on the case. No, I, it. it I do agree that it was non-relevant, but I also under I and I completely understand why they were like Weidman's not going to let this go and he's going to turn it into a whole fucking thing. And then Demert's going to be the one on trial. Right. And because that's what Weidman's strategy was this entire trial. Put anybody on trial. That's not John Peel. Yeah. Throw it throws so much shit in the water that you can't tell. You can't tell true up from down anymore. Yeah. Um, and that's what he did. He basically just repeated the same conspiracy theories over and over again until they sounded uh, plausible. Every court session, the testimonies were buried under shouts of objections from both sides. Day by day, the jury felt overwhelmed and beaten down. Finally, the whole ordeal ended with a whimper. The jury was deadlocked and a mistrial was called. And that leads us to our next discussion question. The initial trial of John Peel is a circus act with Weidman deliberately breaking rules and spinning wild theories, seemingly with the intention of just confusing the jury. Um, Those who followed the Casey Anthony and O.J. Simpson trials are familiar with this tactic. In a society that values innocent until proven guilty and not convicting anyone until we are beyond reasonable doubt, do you think this strategy has its place in court? Is it an unavoidable problem in our judicial system or is it something we should be attempting to evolve past? So. It's a very multifaceted question. Yes. And I will um, start with. Do I think that that kind of tactic has its place in court? Yes, I do. I don't like it uh, because it's a slime ball tactic. But done properly, it can expose the truth, right? Here's the thing. He was abusing it because he was spinning wild theories with nothing behind it. Like saying that uh, Mark Colthurt or Colthurt or I, I don't know. Colthurst. Colthurst was dealing in massive amounts of cocaine. What? Like, 
what? No, no evidence. No, nothing. Not even like, not even like a witness, a single witness that says he had a cocaine, like he did cocaine one time. You did, if he had had that, okay, maybe we could spin something from it. But he's, he's pulling shit out of thin air just to try and prove that they didn't have a case. And that's not where that kind of tactic has its place. If the prosecution, like they did, had a flawed case, and he had things to counter it. Like, I don't know. He could, he would have done a better job pointing the finger at Dean Moon, even with the evidence, uh, even with us having, uh, you know, identified part aspects of his body because it was just teeth. It was a partial teeth imprint, which, um, is not really enough to say that he's dead. Yeah. True. So he would have done a better job of just pointing the finger at that, especially with the prosecution having evidence that he actually did maybe potentially have ties with uh, or issues with uh, with drugs. Okay. But uh, what's uh, Weedman? I'm going to say his name wrong on purpose every single time, just so you know. Okay. That's, that's um, okay. Uh, Weedman uh, was just spinning theories. He was just, he was, lit, he would have, if, if he could have gotten away with it, he would have said, what about Bigfoot? He, he would have used Nick's uh, shaking mermaid theory and he would just be like, as we know, mermaids are well adept at the use of firearms. <laughs> he, he, he would have done anything just to not have, not just to show that the prosecution didn't fill up every single possible hole. Well, that's not their job. Their job is to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that John Peel did it. His job is to defend John Peel and prove that he didn't do it, not spin wild theories. Now, like I said, that does have a place when the prosecution's case is completely flawed and they haven't actually addressed every potential avenue. But based on how the prosecution is presenting the case, they did address every uh, every potential avenue-ish. As much as they could. Right, as much as they could. He could have spun better theories just from, just from that, like putting the blame on the prosecution and the investigation team for not doing a good enough job, saying that they didn't have enough evidence because realistically they didn't. They had no hard physical evidence. There was no smoking gun. There was no literal gun. There were, so they didn't have a murder weapon. All they had was wishy-washy witness testimony. Effectively, which were directly contra contradicted by different West witness testimony. Right. Like this, like honest to God, the DA made a mistake by letting this go to trial without having any kind of physical evidence. Now, that's not saying because we've said it before on the show that people have been put to death off witness testimony. And but that's like ironclad witness testimony. You know, right. And it's not witness testimony that seems to change with the seasons right and and then uh witness testimony that is then countered by other witness testimony that like there was no there was absolutely no timeline good proper timeline set in place by the by the prosecution and that should have been their first thing that they did was try to establish a timeline when did the like they have an estimate that uh, estimation that it happened sometime after dinner on sunday and 6 a.m the next day that's when the killings took place. Okay. 
well, let's let let's take that and uh, establish. I don't know any kind of time frame, especially because the the version of the timeline that I mentioned that would have exonerated John Peel was based on when did the first May Day go out to the Coast Guard about the fire versus when did computer records state that John Peel made a purchase in town mm-hmm. and a phone call from a payphone that would have indicated that he did not have enough time to get from the boat to where he would have been at that point. And on the version that we have of that, it's like judge, judging by the first recorded Mayday call, he didn't have enough time, but then there's also something like then like some people from the Coast Guard or somebody else is like, oh, that's the first recorded Mayday call. There were two before that. And it's like, why aren't they fucking logged then? Right. A lot of people didn't do their jobs here. No, no. A lot. A lot of there. There was a lot of bumbles and fucking failures all up and down uh, this case. I, I will say also, kind of to answer that question, I, I think uh, Widener's strategy. Uh, sure, I mean, peop- I don't know, think you're going to legislate that kind of behavior away. It is a strategy, uh, as much as I think it is again a scumball tactic. I thought I think Widener is a complete sk- scum, uh, oh, complete skis ball. No, he's a like an ambulance chaser kind of lawyer. Yeah, but yeah. I will, and I but I will say this: I did. I was trying to do some thinking about his motivations for the specific conspiracies he spun. And I actually came up with one regarding the cocaine thing with Mark. Yes. Uh, um, so during jury selection, Widener was very clear that he wanted blue collar working people in the jury. Yeah. Uh, and, and if we think about it, uh, Mark Colthurst, he had this $750,000 boat. Uh, he was somewhat of an outsider. I think, he, I, I think Widener was trying to bring in people uh, who would be jealous of Mark, who would be yes. see all that wealth and then think and then would be easily buy the. Well, of course, he's doing something illicit. How else would you get that boat? Well, and blue collar people innately are going to side with somebody who's more like them. Um, like that, that's the theory, I, yeah. I should say. The theory is that you like if you're defending a blue collar person, you want blue collar people on there because they're more likely to feel sympathy for you. Right. Um, I, I will say this, though. I Sure. I mean, you, you, you can't get rid of that kind of behavior. But what you can do is not be a complete pushover when you're the judge. Ah, and I, I think, was just about to bring this up to you. And Judge Schultz, um, uh, in my opinion, the trial turning into a circus was his fault because hundred oh, percent he, it, you know, prosecutions, flimsy case aside, or the defense attorney's antics aside, Judge Schultz fundamentally failed to control his courtroom. He oh, could yeah. he could not stop Widener from saying the things that he was forbidden from saying. He couldn't stop the prosecution and defense from openly bickering with each other in court. I think that Schultz was too uh, he was too soft in how he ran his courtroom. I think the second that Widener defied him uh, for a second time, I think he should have kicked him out of the courtroom. He should have been he should have been fined so much money. He was fined fifteen hundred dollars at the end of it. it. He should have been fined so much more money and then been taken off the case because he couldn't he couldn't uh, abide by the rules of the courtroom. And but Schultz just fucking. Like, I don't know, he was like jerking off in his robe or something because he just wasn't doing 
anything to control him. I mean, they literally went out of their way in closing arguments to say, you can't say these things. Like these, it was like a list of six things or six or seven things that they were like, you can't talk about this. One of them was the cocaine thing because it was fucking ludicrous. Yeah. And what did he do? He talked about all six of them. Literally every single fucking one of them. He was just like, yep, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to I'm gonna say them all because Judge Schultz is just busy jerking off over there. He's not going to pay any fucking attention. Weidman was like a cartoon cat who sits on your table and stares at you until you look at him. And the minute you do, you're like, don't you dare knock that glass of milk off the table. And he looks at you and he does a little kitty smile and he just sends the glass of milk flying directly across the room yeah no he was the in the 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 first probably i don't know three times that it happened weedman knew that he could get away with it and so he did because he didn't he doesn't care no it it, it, for him the ends oh he seems like the kind of guy who the ends will always justify the means for him uh it doesn't matter that he's making a mockery of law and justice or that he's potentially getting a mass murderer off the hook. What matters is his win loss record. Yep. Yeah. You're not wrong. He, uh, he advertised his win loss record. Yeah. Again, I got so many just Casey Anthony trial vibes because that's exactly what they did in the, in the Casey Anthony case, her lawyer made a bunch of shit up about like that, that, at one point in that trial, they floated a testimony that it's like, well, you know, Casey's father has been molesting her since she was eight years old. And then that they never substantiated that because basically later the, the legal team kind of admitted like, oh, no, no, we made that up just to confuse the jury. Yeah, uh-huh. they I mean, and and I like that's the part that I'm not OK with. Like when you when you when you're spinning theories and you're and you're doing that kind of shit, literally with the end purpose of just putting doubt in there for doubt's sake you're not doing the law you're not doing any any favors for the law all you're doing is just trying to win by being an asshole or a cheater or however you want to word it but done properly that that tactic can actually mean something it could actually help the prosecution do their job if you did it right yeah yeah i i think when it comes right down to it i don't think i I don't think really just kind of thinking through should this kind of antics be allowed. I think that if it's verifiable that you are doing that, like you're just spreading theories just to confuse the jury. I think that that should be a disbarable offense. I At at least it should put you under review. Yeah. And I also I mean, I also don't see why we couldn't have. Uh, lawyers have to get sworn in where, yeah, you're not going to knowingly, willfully just lie in, in court. I think that it, our courtrooms should be places for truth to hold out. If I can't lie on the stand, you can't lie to you can't lie to me while I'm on the stand. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I, I 100% I agree with that. Yeah, I, I think that it sullies the entire purpose of our criminal justice system. Yeah, no, I, 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 I wholeheartedly agree with you. And uh, I think... I, I, I actually I like that statement that it's like when you're in a courtroom, truth, period. It doesn't matter if you're the judge, if you're the jury, if you're the if you're the prosecution, if you're in there and you are acting as you, a part of this court case, you are there to tell the truth, period. Full stop. I would even be comfortable with that being one of the crimes where there's not a statue of limitation on it. If it's like if we discover evidence 20 years from now that you lied 
to a judge, well, you were a lawyer on this case, you're disbarred and you're spending five years in jail. Like, that's... I don't know about the jail, but definitely disbarred and fined. Yeah. Mostly because I don't want to give one cent to the prison industrial complex. And that's fair. Please, please, and, please and dismantle the prisons. As we know, jail is not actually a, uh, a good system for, um, well, anything. It makes everything worse. It doesn't help anyone. I think we should go back to the what pirates did and just maroon people. <laughs> I don't agree, <laughs> but... Um... How do you maroon someone if you're in Iowa? You put them on a plane... They fly him out to a, a, a abandoned island with a you know a single shot flint a flint lock and then they parachute down. Baby, it, isn't that essentially just executing someone? No, the pistol is either for them to willingly you know execute themselves or food. Baby, okay. that's that's just execution with more steps. Uh, also, I got to point out, like, if you're in Iowa, you don't need to fly him out to an island. Just leave him in the middle of the corn. No, nah, <laughs> sure we'll take care of it. No, nah, they know how to get out of the corn. They grew up in it. I don't think the corn will let them go. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. We remove people. We 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 remove people in Iowa in in like Central Park. Where they can get eaten by all of the mean New York raccoons and people in <laughs> Manhattan get marooned in the Iowan corn. <laughs> Yo, you don't you guys don't have to vote for my marooning plan, but I'm voting for my marooning plan. <laughs> I am not gonna vote for your marooning plan. <laughs> I mean I, I think that it is fraught with difficulties. <laughs> I, uh, I would be okay with like public shaming. <laughs> like, can oh, you imagine no. if they just made John Peel like just stand on the tallest building and Craig just wearing a big sign that's like, I did all the murders. The tallest building in Craig, you mean a fishing boat? Yep. <laughs> I think the tallest building in Craig might have been that restaurant that yeah. the Colhurst had their last meal at. It looked like it was a two story place. Yeah. Oh, Craig, Alaska, you adorable little scrap of civilization. I, I mean, looking <laughs> at pictures, there's not much there. Uh, it's a couple of dirt roads, some houses. There's a gas station. Uh, there was that restaurant, but it burned down in the 90s. 2015. Okay, not the 90s. <laughs> Time is an illusion, and you all need to let go of it. <laughs> you were two decades off. <laughs> Why did you think it was the 90s? I don't know. It's just that's what my brain supplied me, and so I ran with it. Well, um, that's a good segue. I think we're ready for the next section. <laughs> okay, okay. The next section is short. We're almost, we're almost done, guys. Okay, then I get to share my theories. I, I'm so excited for your theories. I don't know if I am. I'm excited, but I don't know if it's for your theories. What are you excited for? I don't for? need to know about your sex life. Hmm. <laughs> okay that's a long enough pause a short time later a second trial was held even though nobody really wanted one the venue was changed and then so was the judge the defense had found shaky evidence of a conflict of interest and had won their motion for a new one god shaky was like i can't believe they got that that was so shaky for context for the listeners the judge the first judge judge schultz who we uh we talked about. We, we dragged a little. Slam dunk. <laughs> Dunking on Judge Schultz should be a national pastime. But anyway, <laughs> uh, they found out that his law clerk was... F 
fucking one of the attorneys for John Peel's defense. Weidman. Yeah, I I couldn't remember if it was McGee or Weidman, but yeah, she was Widener. Weidman. No, it's Weidman. Is it Weidman? It's, yes. it's Weidman. I wrote down Widener. Yeah, it's, no. wi- it's Weidman, but Weidman. Okay. <laughs> it, it bothered him in the courtroom when the when Jim Robinson when Jim Robinson kept saying Weidman. So I'm going to say it forever. Funny yeah, okay. because Jim Robinson was also not that man's name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, okay, I got to point out, he was a criminal in Arizona who was wanted because he lit a car on fire. Yeah. <laughs> no! And why didn't we investigate him for the arson? Because that's a good Rust, question. Because because Mary Ann Henry was too busy trying to prove that Dean Moon was dead, even though she'd already proved Dean Moon was dead. Maybe possibly. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. Please do continue. I will. Uh, I will shut my yap hole. Yeah, uh, Judge Schultz's law clerk was uh, was fucking Philip Weidman, and they're like, "That's a conflict of interest that she's fucking me," and is also the judge's law clerk. So can we have a new judge? And the state of Alaska is like, "You can have whatever you want if you get the fuck out of my office." And actually, they did. The next trial was in Washington. I know they got out of Alaska because Alaska was so goddamn sick of this thing, of this case. Yep. Sorry, I'm having a lot of fun. (laughs) Uh, The new judge also couldn't maintain control of the courtroom. Uh, There was more there was more wild speculation from Weedman, despite him being told to not do that anymore. What do you know? There was more weak pro- there was more weak conjecture and circumstantial evidence from the prosecution despite the fact that they'd had another year to streamline their case. More exhaustion from the jury. It was just it was just more of the same all over again. Very little change with this next trial except the outcome. This time we got a verdict from the jury. Not guilty. John Peel had been officially acquitted of the investor murders. And while his family was obviously over the moon, the Colthurst family was less than pleased. Though disappointed, they resolved to move forward with their lives. Dean Moon's mother, Ruth, tried to do the same. Her only relief came from the fact that her son's name would no longer be dragged through the mud. Marianne Henry and many of the Alaska troopers maintained that John Peel had committed the crimes, but Henry admitted that she had lost fair and square. In the years following, John Peel and Philip Weidman filed a civil lawsuit against the state of Alaska, asking for $177 million in damages. Yeah, that'll be the day. It was settled for a mere 900000 Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> To this day, Peel maintains his innocence and says that the case has nothing to do with him anymore. Trooper Bob Anderson, for his part, left law enforcement to start a hunting lodge. By some accounts, he is still plagued by nightmares of what he saw aboard the investor. The Alaskan government has never launched another investigation. The case is considered closed. Finally, here we are. Do you think John Peel did it? Um, I'm going to just say that I'm going to give it a hearty probably. Uh, and honestly, it's not the shaky testimonies or the circumstantial evidence. It's the behavior of his attorneys, uh, if that makes sense, because to me, and this is entire, this is probably entirely biased and probably not correct. 
uh, but I'm not a legal person, so that's okay. Um, when you have attorneys that are needing to throw that much mud in the water, it I to me that indicates they're hiding something. Um, also, I think that Dawn Holstrom, I think she was telling the truth uh, when she said that he had confessed. I think that as the trial got bigger and became this kind of protean thing that just went on for years and never ended, I think she wanted an out. I think that was a very common sentiment along among a lot of the witnesses that they just wanted this to be done with and they wanted to go back to their lives. Um, and so they, they said whatever they thought they needed to say to bring the trial to an end. Uh, that that's a, that's a guess on my part. Um, I think that... Of anyone listed in the book, it's most likely John Peel because the only other real option is Dean Moon. And uh, while they only did have partial teeth, again, I come back to he was only 19. He would where did he go for the rest of his life? And also that would mean that he what took a pair of pliers and pulled half his teeth out. I find it much more believable that it was just John Peel and he was angry that he had been fired and he was feeling vengeful and feeling jealous and he made a mistake while he was drunk. Could have been a fight too that knocked out the teeth. Could have been. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. I, I, don't have a, I don't have a yes or no there. No, I mean, I, I don't, I'm just speculating. Uh, before I get to my, my, my weirdo theory, you go ahead, Rory. Um, I'm not convinced. I, I think that the way that the book is laid out, I think John Peel is the best option that they had. But I don't think they explored enough. Because the one thing that I feel like they really needed to establish and didn't was motive. And I'm not convinced by the disgruntled employee motive that he was mad that he got fired so he murdered his entire family and his friends. I'm I'm not convinced by that. Prosecution's primary argument for that was he went there to kill Mark and then had to kill everyone else because of because they knew who he was. Yeah, but why? He was a little upset that he's no longer driving on a boat that wasn't honestly that successful that season. It was the biggest and shiniest though. Sure, but if he was that mad, well, who the fuck cares? Like why, I mean, you already have a job on another boat doing the exact same thing, probably making the same percentage or more. Right. I, I just, I'm, I don't buy it. You know, yeah, I, 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 I think for me, it comes back to that having to cross two boats and come back. If it wasn't John Peel, to me, it makes most sense that it was a member of a, the crew of the other two boats, because those be the only people in my mind that could go come and go like that without being, uh, calling a lot of attention to themselves. You know, one thing that uh, I disagreed with in this book that Leland Hale wrote and made seem like it was like fact is that there's not a lot of people that are five foot ten, 150 pounds. That is perfectly average height and perfectly average yeah, weight. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. I was like, really? I um, is that it, that uncommon? The, the American average height is five foot ten. Yeah, the weight that you are that you should be at five foot ten is between one hundred and fifty and one hundred and seventy five pounds. Yeah, so a perfectly average human male is <laughs> what you are. Uh, what you are saying is uncommon in, in you know in, in this scenario, and that's just not true. I mean, maybe it was uncommon in the area, but I don't. 
I don't know. Like, I'm not going to say. I mean, I, I feel like five foot ten, one fifty is a pretty standard size for a fisherman. Yeah, you know that makes sense. And I, so I'm not, and especially when they said that, and they're like, and then there was one that was a member of the crew that fit that description perfectly. It's like, come on, you know. And I, so I don't, and 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 the the most compelling evidence that they had in my opinion, like our witness wise was the skipper of the Libby eight who claimed to have, who claimed that he saw John Peel and specifically said it was John Peel, but never saw his face. Right. Just saw the cap with the wheat, with the, the, the gold, the, the pot leaf on it. And that he was five foot 10, about 150 pounds. I I would also like to point out if John Peel was on the boat that night, that's, that's very incriminating evidence for him that still doesn't actually mean he did it. Right. So I'm not I'm I, I'm not saying that John Peel didn't do it. I just I just I'm not convinced by the evidence that the prosecution and the investigators put together that he did. And a, a big part of that is I just don't buy the the motive that they spun especially when he kind of held his cool underneath the obvious intimidation that they were putting there because if this is something if this is something that he didn't do that he's not he's not a known killer which by everybody else's testimony he's not right uh he should have fallen apart to that kind of intimidation but he didn't he went along with it. He he went along with the with the lie detector test, even though he was intimidated by the lie detector test. He went along with the whole thing. And I think the attorney bit, I mean, he kind of seemed like a spiteful little like early 20 year old. So he's like, all right, you guys are going to put me on trial. I'm going to give you the most flamboyant trial you can possibly have. When Especially I, when that guy probably offered his services to him pro bono. Yeah. Why wouldn't you take that? This guy who's got an absolute killer record and he's going to fuck and he's going to do it for, for free, except for once you win, he's going to take probably 40% of that $900,000. I, I can't even imagine being accused of eight murders at 23 years old. And I cannot imagine being put on trial for them at 27. That is like... I, so yeah, I think John Peel is was the best option that the that that they had, but I I'm not convinced that he did it because I don't think they explored enough. Uh, they they explored their options enough. Like it just it's so it it the whole case was so sketchy in terms of the the witness that like what the witnesses were saying like. Speaking honestly, this probably should have just never gone to trial and they should have continued to build their case and try to do more and explore other options, whatever they could have thought of, uh, because they did not have any kind of groundwork for a good case. This was a nightmare from the beginning. No, absolutely no argument here. But like... Like, I have so many thoughts of things that they probably should have done. It just, they don't, like, I can't, it's all speculative because I, you know, I wasn't, obviously I wasn't there, but it's like, how how many people, with a thousand people in the town coming and going all the time, or, you know, or not even, not even coming and going all the time, a thousand people in the town, you, I, I can't imagine it would have been that hard to do more interviews. 
But it seems like once they got there, like it feels like once they got their eyes set on Peel, like the first time they went, they went like, meh, kind of hard at him, right? Because he was the best fitting description yeah. that they had. And then what, two months went by and they really didn't do all that much work in that two months. They did some interviews and looked at the boat some more. Oh, they investigated the maybe sighting of Dean Moon, which right, in, turned out to in, not be anything. In California, right? Yeah. Somebody and, in California thought they saw Dean Moon walking around. Right. And and then that turned out to be nothing. And then they went immediately back to John Peel. Yeah. It's like, I, I get that you want to have the boogeyman, that you want to have a face to put this, but isn't it your responsibility to also make sure you don't put an innocent man behind bars? Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I and I, I feel like they were too gung ho about getting somebody. And since he he fit the description and was there at the time. Therefore, he must have been the one to do it. I mean, cops do that all the frickin time, though. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they do. And it's a huge problem. I mean, look at the Ramsey case. Mm hmm. All right, so are we ready for the paranormal theory? Yes, 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 okay, yes. Okay, I'll say this uh, disclaimer. I don't think this is what happened uh, because I don't, I can't imagine many paranormal elements pulling out of 22. Uh, but that said, I did some research and the closest thing to a paranormal explanation for this crime that I can come to is the Kushtaka, which is a mythical shape-shifting creature found in the legends of the Tlingit people, a native tribe of the Pacific Northwest and Alaskan area. Uh, they are known to be tricksters and shapeshifters, able to take human form. Uh, one of their other common forms is an otter. They're sometimes also called otter men. Uh, and while they are sometimes uh, friendly, they are also sometimes very cruel, love playing tricks, and are capable of generating complex illusions to fool their victims. They also are said to uh, specifically hunt and abduct and devour children. So the reason this is my theory is because we had the skipper of the Libby 8 see John Peel out there, right? And we had all these bodies, but the one four-year-old child was missing. What if a Kushtaka saw this boat, crept on board, dispatched with everyone, and then abducted the child and then created the illusion of John Peel to create a smoke screen so no one would ever question what happened on that boat? That would imply that Ottermen have a grudge against John Peel. No, they just wanted a kid. They just wanted sweet, sweet meat. And uh, John Peel was a patsy. It was just a convenient patsy. You know what? No, I do believe this. I'm going to stick my 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 hat my flag in the ground and say this is what happened. So I didn't come up with a supernatural theory, but I did come up with an idea that involves paranormal stuff. Okay. Yes. So I think if we ever have the opportunity to go to Craig, Alaska. Okay. We should go to Craig, Alaska and do a seance. <gasps> I do not want to do that, but okay. And why? I don't know. It seems disrespectful. I mean, besides that, that I thought went without We're saying. Do it, doing it with the intention of trying to help solve the crime is not disrespectful, especially if the if it in any way helps the the victims that might still be left behind move on. Oh, that's fair. All right, seances so are not bad. No, I know. I, honestly, my my larger uh, reason I don't want to do it is I don't really want to go to Craig. 
No, I don't either. But my idea was that you could, we could do that. And then the idea that I had was if we get any actual evidence from it, we should send it to Leland. I don't know if he'd appreciate oh, that. Oh, God, no. I don't think he would. But it would be, <laughs> but it, I, I want to know what the response would be. Yeah. I think he would laugh at us, but the laugh would sound disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I think he'd be like, oh, kids. No, but honestly, though, Kushtaka uh, aside, I think Leland Hale actually summed up my feelings on the case better than I ever could uh, in the epilogue to the book. I have one quote, one quote for this episode. And it is, quote, after 15 years, millions of dollars, a seemingly endless investigation and two highly contentious trials, the John Peel case had finally run its course. Despite the best efforts of all parties involved, the entire affair trickled away with barely a murmur. The investigation was never reopened. No one was any happier. No one was any wiser. Nobody won. And I think that that really strikes at what at my my feelings at the end of this case. It it felt like an unspeakable tragedy that was made worse by the by the shitty behavior of the attorneys. And there will never be any closure to it. I, I don't I don't think this case will ever be definitively solved. No, it's at this point, I, I would say it's impossible unless somebody came forward and said they did it. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. If if unless there's some deathbed confession or something. I don't see anything more coming of this case, sadly. Uh, although I, although it's recently as 2017, John Peel did make a statement to people magazine yep. talking about uh, his innocence. Yeah. It was real short. Yeah. It's basically yeah. saying I didn't do it. Someone out there knows who did it. And until they come forward, this would be unsolved. Yeah. I, yeah. Re- I read that article too. And I actually, I took a quote from that article. It's not a very good quote, but it but it was about the most accurate thing that I uh, that I that I'd read. Except for like, I don't necessarily agree with the with the the statement. But former police detective McNeil said, uh, "quote They got the right guy. Just because someone is acquitted doesn't mean they're innocent. Just means there's not enough evidence to show guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which is pretty accurate. Like if John Peel did it." And he might have. I'm just, like I said, I'm just not convinced. But that is exactly what he what what he's saying in that quote. There, it was up to the prosecution to be convincing to show beyond a reasonable doubt. And in my opinion, they just they just didn't do it. I I I agree with you wholeheartedly that as much as it would be nice to see the the culprit get put away for what they'd done, I I'm. I have to say that I am glad John Peel was acquitted just because him getting sent away would have been a miscarriage of justice just because the prosecution did not do their job. And every every person that gets sent away without the prosecution doing their job is a blight on our system. Yeah, it is not. It is. And Marianne Henry I, I have to commend her for one thing. After the after he got acquitted, she did stay. It's like, I think he did it. But like I said in the summary, she said she lost fair and square. She's like, I didn't do my job. And it's better that and it's better that nine guilty men go free than one innocent man go away. And she, she's like, I I didn't convince the jury. That's on me. It's not his fault. He didn't go to prison for that thing. I definitely think he did. It's true. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, it's her and her team's 
are, it is their fault for not uh, not putting together a case and bringing a case to trial that they were not able to win. I, it, it was not a winnable trial. Yeah. I if I'd been sitting in that jury box, I would I would have had to say not guilty. Be and I if the judge had polled me, I would have said no. Part of me definitely thinks he did it, but I refuse to send him away on this evidence. One of the jurors said that exact same thing. They said that they thought that he did it, but the evidence wasn't there to support it. Yeah. And I, I keep bringing up the Casey Anthony trial because that's exactly what a bunch of the jurors said. Of They're like, we think she did it, but the prosecution fucked up so bad we didn't feel comfortable sending her away based on what they presented. But uh, as much as it sucks to say this, but it's true. That is our system working. Yeah, no, it it is. It is absolutely of it's like the burden of proof is on the prosecution, Correct. never on the defense. Correct. Because, it, yeah, it's their job to prove it. Like if they if they if I go into court and I say I am not guilty, then it is your job to prove that I am. It is not my job to prove that I'm innocent. Just to defend myself. No, exactly. Exactly. Um, just for my final thoughts, I I my opinion changes every couple of hours on if I think John Peel did it or not. But I it's probably about 50 50. I think he did it. And 50 percent. Um. I've said this to Nick uh, several times while while Rory's been away at the office that I think it's just as likely that this was done by a suspect the police never named because of something the police were never aware of. I don't I don't think you I don't think Mark Colthurst was dealing cocaine. I think that's ridiculous. I but, don't think so. I don't think that. But he was. you know what? I wouldn't with some of the shit that I've read in true crime. I would not be that shocked if like 20 years from now, someone was dying in in a hospital bed and said, oh, by the way, I was stalking Irene Colthurst and I snapped and I went there to kidnap her and kill her husband. And I ended up massacring everyone on the investor. That honestly would not surprise me at all. And it wouldn't surprise me that the police weren't aware of that. And that's exactly that's exactly the point. I was trying that I was that I was trying to get at earlier. It's like they just they, the only thread that they investigated was anything connected to Mark. Yeah, they, they looked at nothing else. Yeah, no, that, that's a fair point. That is a a very valid criticism. And and yes, we never we never found anything to substantiate the foreman's uh, the informants. Assertion that Dean Moon may have been in debt to a drug dealer, but also I'm not sure the police devoted any amount of time to chasing that particular thread. How do we how do we know because they didn't pursue it that the person who killed them went, went there to kill Dean Moon, shattered his jaw, took out half of his teeth, took him since we don't have a body, killed everybody else because they were witnesses, and then just fucked off into the wind. Yeah. And they and they they did. They said it's just like, well, Irene and Mark were shot so many more times that indicates something personal. It's like or it implies that Mark was a big guy and Irene was a mother protecting her children and they needed to be shot way more times before they went down. And how do we know that it wasn't they were shooting at Mark while he was trying while he was fleeing to try and get his rifle? Yeah, exactly. It's. They're, they do, they didn't they didn't do enough they didn't look at enough threads yeah and one of the things that make made me angriest it is at one point the prosecution said that John Peel's 
guilt could be indicated by the fact that he looked shocked and afraid when he heard a rumor that Dean Moon might be alive. If it's like, yeah, because everyone thought Dean Moon was dead. And I also would be freaked out if it's like, wait, if Dean Moon's alive, that means he did this. And of course, John got a little freaked out because he used to work with Dean Moon. I got the impression that they were kind of friends. He he would still go to the he would still hang out with Dean Moon and smoke pot with him. Like, yeah, it was. I yeah so I yeah I just final thoughts 50-50 John Peel probably out of the suspects that they have named John Peel is the most likely one to have done it but I don't I I would not have if I was in that jury box I would not have felt in any way comfortable declaring him guilty just because there's so many gaps in what happened Agreed I mean I I think if I was in the jury box I'd feel similarly I mean, it, it's easy to make, uh, you know, condemning statements sitting here in my comfortable chair, having read a single book about the case. Right. I don't know what the experience of being in the courtroom for a year straight would have been. Eight months. But yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, something I forgot. And I'm it, it's almost meaningless now at this point in the episode. But I want to bring it up because it bothered me so much. Yes, please in, do. In the first um, in the first trial. And I think this might have been. Judge Schultz's uh, biggest mistake was letting the jury go after only a day and a half of deliberation. Yeah. 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 I- like the next the next trial, they deli- they deliberated for four days. That makes more sense with that kind of trial. A day and a half after eight months of uh, testimony and, ev- you know, and everything else, like they needed more time and he should have forced them to deliberate more. Yeah. Yeah. And implying that there was a hung jury, the prosecution should have pushed for that more because then there's a chance that they would have won. All right. Well, are we ready to move into the about the author? Yes, I am personally. So most of this comes off of Leland Hale's website. Uh, There's not a lot else out there about him. Which is LelandHale.com. I think it's .net. .net. I'm I'm not sure 100%. Leland Hale in Google. Uh, yeah. yeah, Google Leland Hale. There's not many of them. Uh, so Leland Hale uh, was is a lifelong resident of Seattle, Washington, uh, where he was born. He grew up in an artistic family. His mother was a concert flutist and his father was an illustrator. Uh, he got his B.A. from the University of Washington. Uh, growing up as a child of the Great Depression, he ended up pursuing several careers. Uh, he's worked in politics, energy, aerospace, the software industry. Uh, he's worked. He worked a long career as a dairy scientist. Uh, yet writing has always been his passion. Uh, it took him eight years to complete his first book, which was uh, Butcher Baker on Robert Hansen, the serial killer. Uh, it took him a decade to write his next book, which was a novel called Huck Finn is Dead, a novel about a 14-year-old runaway who escapes his guardians to embark on a cross-country journey across America to find his estranged mother. Uh, and it took a c- comparable amount of time to write What Happened in Craig. Actually, uh, he I think I believe he started What Happened in Craig before he even wrote the other ones and couldn't get it together till Because of the lawsuit. Oh, yeah, because of the lawsuits. That's right. Yeah. Um. He is best known for his work on the Robert Hansen case through the book Butcher Baker, uh, which is uh, considered one of those definitive uh, tomes for that serial killer. That's what everyone references. Uh, That book would later be used to inform the film The Frozen Ground, a movie about the Hansen killings starring Nicolas Cage and John Cusack. 
Uh, he's also an occasional contributor to The Lineup, a horror, true crime, dark enthusiast publication where he's released several articles about Robert Hansen and true crime in general. He also once testified before the U.S. Congress on the Pacific Northwest's energy policies, which he says he never wants to do again. <laughs> he now resides on the other side of the Puget Sound on the rural Kitsap Peninsula. And uh, that's what we got. I, oh, and one more fact. In one week's time, we're talking to him. That's right. Uh, we got another episode of Midnight Chats coming up with Leland E. Hale. We're going to talk true crime with him, which is going to be interesting because Jay is going to know a lot more than everyone else, except probably Leland Hale. Yeah. I enjoy the, the stabbings that people do to each other. That's a way to say it. <laughs> okay. So are you ready for housekeeping? Yeah, I'm ready for housekeeping. Yeah, all right. So if you did like this, you know, this show, any of the other episodes that we've done, and you want to, I don't know, comment on it you want to tell us about how awesome we are you want to give us a book suggestion or you want to yell at us you can go ahead and do that by sending us an email at noctivianpodcast at gmail.com or you can uh interact with us on twitter uh where we have a podcast twitter at noctivianpod or you can interact with us individually i am at mix rory wicks I am at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And if you are a Tumblr user, you can find me on there at Noctivigant Podcast. And we also have an Instagram that I don't use very much, but it's Noctivigant underscore podcast. And we're also on Reddit. I think you can guess the username. Noctivigant Podcast. You got it. Oh, look at us go. If you committed the investor murders, please feel free to confess to us anonymously on any of those sites. Don't do it anonymously, though. Uh, for legal reasons, we need you to tell us your name and address. Yeah. Phone number, too, if, you, if you're willing. And we absolutely will not not give that to authorities. Yeah. No, we will. That's, We're gonna rat you out. That was the point of the double negative. Yeah. Can you imagine how much oh. it's going to convince the it's going to take to convince the fucking cops that this fucking Tumblr DM I got is like a, <laughs> is like a substantial I'm like no this man insists he committed the investor murders they're going to be like get the fuck out we don't even know what that is we'll go we're right, in Michigan we'll go straight to the FBI yeah or something <laughs> I don't know we fly to Craig Alaska you know what if you did do it don't email us <laughs> do not message us don't interact with us because I don't want to be put under that kind of pressure now I really want you to do it <laughs> and coming up in two weeks we got Fringology by Steve Volk uh, which is fun it's going to be a great time I'm I'm excited about it I think it's going to be a little different than the uh, the rest of the fringy books that we've done yeah it's definitely uh, written for a less weird audience than us yeah but, you know, hey, that's cool, too. Yeah. I mean, it's always a good time when you're taking point on the episodes. Aw. Yeah. Aw. Okay. Not you, though. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> I was starting to feel good about myself, too. I'll go back to my hole. I was kidding. I love it when you do it. In fact, you should do it more. <laughs> All right. I think that's it, though. Um, yeah, uh, I think I think we're done here. So, good night, ghosties, good night, ghoulies, good night, moth people. Be safe out there on those midnight roads. Stay safe out there. Yeah. What they said.
Okay, listeners, I have a minor confession for you. Uh, the thing that I was almost that I almost called Don Holstrom was specifically Dizzy Bitch, and, I, and I'm sure you can see why I pulled that back. <laughs> <laughs>